So as the kids say when they post stuff on social media, I'm just going to leave this right here. Those who, those who know, know. I'm, I'm a lifelong Rams fan, so I just thought I'd get that out of the way. Oh, you missed first service. I had two sons sitting over here. The one who's lifelong Rams got me, and the other one who was wearing his Joe Burrow Bengals um, jersey. So we, even in the household, we're, we're having to show mercy, you know? <laughs> if you are, by the way... Um, New to, to Grace Bible Church, want to just invite you as well. We have a newcomer's luncheon that we do from time to time, and we had put word out about that a while ago. Today is one of those days, so we'll transform this half of the worship center after the service and have lunch. Um, but there's plenty of food, and there should be some extra seats. So if, if you're new and you, or you've been attending for a short time and want to stick around, I think we'll do okay. I think we got enough. It's pizza and some salad, so we welcome you to stick around afterwards. We're studying a stu- starting a study in the book of Isaiah this morning. Um, if you would turn there or scroll there, and, and the big picture sort of roadmap for you as you think about the book of Isaiah, a couple different ways you can look at the, uh, the structure of Isaiah, but most scholars, most commentators will, will say that it, it, there seems to be a significant break at the point of the end of chapter 39, between chapter 39 and 40. Chapters 1 through 39, God is speaking largely to Judah and to the nations, and he is dealing with their sin. He is addressing their sin, and he is speaking a message of judgment and how he will work among the nations. And then in chapter 40, that begins that, that passage where... Um, Prepare the way of the Lord. You know, the, the idea that, that John the Baptist, we, we see the voice crying in the wilderness in Isaiah chapter 40. It is, there's a transition that goes on there. And the phrase, my servant, becomes a significant part of chapters 41 through 66 as we begin to look forward to the coming of the Messiah. Uh, and so what we will do here in terms of our study is we'll take the next 16 weeks, including this morning, that'll take us through the end of May, and we will go through chapters 1 through 39, and then pick it back up in the fall with chapters 40 through 66, Lord willing. Um, So if you're doing simple math, you're saying 39 chapters, 16 weeks, we're not going to do verse by verse through everything in chapters 39, but but we hope to, is it me and the microphone that's having issues? I don't know if, is it rubbing or is it just, let's see if this works and Ah, okay. Oh, yeah, there we go. Move your mug farther away. Lisa's happened early in the sermon, so I can't completely throw myself off. All right, let's try that and see if that works. All right, making Kevin nervous. So anyway, we'll, we'll work through, hit all the high points, hopefully answer the questions, and, and give you the flow of the book of Isaiah. I want to read chapter 1 this morning. We will spend this morning completely in chapter 1, because I, I, chapter 1 is really significant. 1 through 5 are really the introduction to Isaiah. You, most people are familiar with chapter 6, where Isaiah sees the vision of God in the temple, but 1 through 5 sort of set the stage for that. And 1 uniquely, because 1 really captures a lot of the themes that we're going to see recur throughout the book of Isaiah. So we're going to spend time in chapter 1 this morning. What I'd like to do is I'd like to read all of chapter 1, and I'd like to just do something a little different if you would stand, and I'm, I'm going to read Isaiah 1, verses 1 through 31, as we just meditate on the Word of God together, and then we'll work our way through. Isaiah 1 begins, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. 
Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left for us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you the trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark. 
and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. You may be seated. Pretty heavy stuff, right? Reading chapter one of Isaiah already exposes sort of the challenges we have in studying scripture and doing the interpretive work of understanding scripture. And the two of the challenges that are significant to us are that it is poetry and that it is prophecy, and both are from a Hebrew perspective. There's a Hebrew sort of flow and syntax to this. And so as we are seeking to understand what Isaiah meant when he wrote this 700 years before Christ, there are some challenges for us. Uh, the, the, the key to all Bible study for us should be that, to understand what it was the writer meant when he wrote it. It's not just, I, this is what it means to me. I think this is what it means. We're, we're trying to get down to understand when Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Christ, he had a specific meaning in mind that God intended through him. And so what is that? And Isaiah is prophecy. In a very classic sense, we talk about prophecy sometimes in the sense of um, foretelling the word, speaking forth, the prophetic sort of word, but this is prophecy in the sense of foretelling. This is telling what will happen, things that are to come, and the power and the knowledge to do that, to accurately say, this is what will happen, belongs to God, and it in fact becomes a key distinctive for God in the book of Isaiah. Uh, let me read from Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11. He says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God foretells, not out of a sense of he thinks this is how it will work, sort of prediction thing. This is God saying, I am the God who causes this to happen. And so what I say will be. And so the prophetic word is what sets God apart from the idols that are being worshipped in that day and bowed down to. And in fact, God draws that distinction between himself and the idols. In chapter 41, he calls on the people of Judah, go ahead gather those idols, and 41 verse 22 says, let them bring them, bring those idols, and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing, and abomination is he who chooses you." It's God speaking to the idols and saying, these are not comparable at all to me. Go ahead and bring them and let them say what is to come, because they can't. That's not something they are capable of doing. And so we're going to see prophecy throughout Isaiah, God telling of things to come, and frequently the contrast between man's failing ways, the idols' failing ways, the inadequacies of man and his struggle, and the perfection and the prophecy of God that is, as he foretells it, it will happen as he says. And so, for instance, in chapter 1, if you look at verse 27 again, when he says, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness, but rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, God is speaking prophetically with absolute assurance 
This is what will happen. There will be a remnant that will be redeemed, but there will be many who will be judged for their sin. They will be condemned and they will suffer for it. When, when Isaiah speaks of Zion, term that we, we see often in the Old Testament prophets, typically we tend to think of the city of Jerusalem. It's that, but it's more in, in Isaiah. It's really the, the people to whom he is betrothed. So it encompasses Jerusalem and, and Judah and the people. And, and, and so verses like 27 and 28 should stand out to us because for all of the the wrath and the judgment in light of their sin, all of the, the promise of what God will bring upon them, these verses say that is not God's final word. That God is still a God who, who redeems. And he still offers forgiveness for those who will repent. And he is not done with Zion. There will be a redemption of a, of a remnant right alongside the destruction of those who continue to rebel. The challenge for us when we read prophecy, particularly as we work through the book of Isaiah, is in terms of timing and fulfillment. There are prophecies in Isaiah that are fulfilled right in Isaiah's lifetime in the latter part of his years. There are prophecies that are fulfilled a couple of hundred years after Isaiah in 500s or so BC. There are prophecies that point to Jesus 700 years away. And then there are those prophetic words that also seem to speak beyond the first coming of Jesus Christ. And they don't come with, you know, a nice, neat table of contents, you know, that would say, and this will be fulfilled in this year, and this will be fulfilled in that year. We're sort of working our way through and trying to catch our bearings at times to understand what these prophecies are, are speaking to. Then there's the matter of poetry. One commentator puts it this way. He says, Isaiah was not a straight-talking prophet. He was a poetic prophet. And, and so Isaiah often uses this imagery, this syntax, this sort of um, circular kind of style, if you will, that is not necessarily easy for us to follow. We, we tend to think in sort of linear chronological terms and we don't always get that in Isaiah, and you should see that, you should have seen that already, just as you read chapter 1. Starts out with God declaring the sin of Judah, how it has infected their nation, how it has infected relationships, how it has infected their worship. And then he gives them instruction in verses 16 and 17, this is how you are to repent and this is how you are to turn to me. And that's when we get to the glorious verses. Come now, let us reason together. Your sins are scarlet, they be as white as snow. And so there's, there's now suddenly hope in the midst of that. There's, a, there, there's, there's talk of, of God rescuing in there. And then it, it gets back again right after that to another warning of judgment. And the faithful city has become a whore. And then verses 26 and 27, it's righteousness and repentance and restoration. And then another strong word of God's judgment. And it just moves in cycles that can sort of spin us around a little bit. Again, we tend to be accustomed to sort of narrative flow. Take me from the beginning of the story to the end. So let's just go with sin and judgment and wrath and then redemption. And Isaiah sort of works in, in, in typical Hebrew sort of poetry in kind of a cyclical approach. And so we come back around again, and we're reminded again of Judah's sin. And so from time to time, we just need to pause and see where we are again in this story. Before we set the stage, though, for, for chapter one, I mean, just one other sort of introductory thought. We've, we've titled this sermon series, Only One Savior. 
Isaiah 43, 11. If there's a verse, if you're going to start memorizing some verses from Isaiah, or maybe you already have and you want to add this to your repertoire of verses from Isaiah. Isaiah 43, 11, God says, I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I am it. And that, that is a theme that we're seeing already in chapter 1. It will persist throughout the book. And it is this, this sort of recurring theme of man's constant quest for significance and meaning and prosperity and goodness without the fear of the Lord. This, this is just man's natural state of, I want all this good stuff and I want meaning in my life. I want to know there's more to it and I want value and I want prosperity but I don't necessarily want to fear the Lord. I don't want to bow before God. And so Isaiah is this, often this grim picture of people trying to satisfy their deepest longings and desires through relationships and accomplishments and acquiring things and, and, and just sort of building their own small little kingdoms, thinking that in that they will find hope because they do not want to bow to a creator and Lord. For instance, when the book begins, when Isaiah starts, there is widespread prosperity in Judah. When, when you see the passages about the cities burning and being desolate and all that, again, this, this is prophetic. The state in which Isaiah first begins to speak, Judah's sitting pretty in, the, in, a, in a worldly sense of things. They are comfortable and, and they have wealth. Uh, in fact, in chapter 2, verse 5, the prophet pleads with the people to walk in the light of the Lord. And if you look for a minute, just scroll over to um, 2, six, Isaiah 2.6. They are not walking in the light of the Lord. He says, for you have rejected, this is to God, for you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. If you think back a couple of weeks to Psalm 20, that horses and chariots piece should sound familiar. Remember the psalm saying, some trust in their chariots, some trust in their horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Fast forward from that psalm about 300 years, and, and the prophet is saying to Judah, now you've got all the chariots and the horses and the gold and the silver, and you think you've got it. You think it is the work of your hands that, that you have done this, that it's the stuff that your fingers have made. And you think somehow you have produced all of this and you are trusting in it. You've put your hope in, in all of this stuff. And Judah, Judah's essentially adopted the mindset. And, and he says it there in chapter two when he says that they've taken on fortune tellers like the Philistines and struck hands with the children of foreigners. He says, you're now thinking like the nations around you. And the nations around you treat God's like tribal sort of deities that are there for provision, for good luck. You, you, you do the certain rituals that your God requires of you, and then you tell him what you want, and he provides it for you. And that's really what the God is there for. You, you give him something, and it's an exchange. He gives you back everything you desire. And, and that's where Judah is at this point in time. They're still, they're still believing that there is a peculiar God over the Jewish people, but they've now defined him in terms of, see all the stuff we got? So God, if we just come and, 
and we do the things you've called us to, come to Jerusalem, do the sacrifices, do the prayers, raise the hands, you give us the stuff, and, and it all works out. Everybody's happy in the end. And so at this stage in time, when we get to the, this book of Isaiah, the Assyrian Empire is looming out there to the east, but the people of Judah essentially are of the mindset that we're good. I mean, we're, we're safe. We got horses, we got chariots, and we got a whole treasury full of money so we can, we can fund an army. So who's going to mess with us? How many nations and empires that history have thought and said exactly that? We're good. Nobody's going to stop us, and they are, they are non-existent now or a shadow of themselves. God's message then and now is, is why we've titled this Only One Savior, because it is him saying, I, I am the Lord. There is no other Savior. There is none beside me. I alone save. You think that you've got yourself secure and you've provided your own sort of salvation? Well, listen, if you put your hope in possessions or chariots or cars or houses or relationships or you name it, you put your hope in someone or something other than me, it will fail terribly and it will destroy you in the process. And that's why he's, he's going to keep emphasizing to Judah and then to us don't trust in these things. There is only one Savior. All right, let's think a little bit more. Coming into chapter one, Isaiah dates the book for us in verse one by telling us the reigns of four kings of Judah. So we know he's coming in near the tail end of the reign of King Uzziah. So this is around 745, 740 BC. His ministry lasts through the reign of King Hezekiah, which is 686 BC. So about 60 years. That, that Isaiah is active in ministry and it seems having access to kings throughout this time where he is, he is speaking the word throughout that time. At that starting point, 745, 750-ish BC, and, and for the previous 150 years or so, the major force in terms of, of world sort of politics is the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire has been growing from a, a small place to what it is now. So you see on the map, I know you can't probably read the, the key on the side, it just tells you that each of these colors show the expansion of the Assyrian Empire. But if you see that sort of orangish, um, uh, sort of ovalish shaped kind of piece in the middle there. That's, that's where Assyria begins, the city of Assur, which um, U.S. troops were 15 years ago were protecting some of the ruins of, of, of that very city because of the history of the Assyrian Empire and, and what became. But, but you go way back to the beginning of Assur, Nineveh, some of those early cities, and around 1350 B.C., that that empire begins to grow and it expands to the west and to the north and it begins to move out. To the point that by the time we get here to the book of Isaiah, the only lands that are left are the, the bottom sort of southwest stuff, the dark green, the light brown, and then the green that goes down into Egypt that, that's still unconquered. But the Assyrian Empire is, they are the, the force to be reckoned with, and they will be until about 610 BC. So from roughly 1350, when they start expanding to 610, they are just this growing empire until internal strife, Typical, right? Nations, evil, internal civil wars, and then ultimately the Babylonian army finishes off the Assyrian Empire. But at this point in time, when Isaiah is writing, Jerusalem is still safe. The Assyrian Empire has 
covered most of the Mediterranean coastline. They have surrounded the northern kingdom of Israel, and they are pressing. They are going to begin to assault the northern kingdom not, not long after this. If you remember your Old Testament history, the Jewish people are divided into two kingdoms right after Solomon. 930 or so BC. Um, and, and so you've got the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. Northern kingdom goes astray from the get-go. Kings of the northern kingdom lead them into evil. Kings in the southern kingdom sort of vary back and forth. And one of those is Uzziah. Uzziah became king at age 16 after a dad who had also shown some signs of godliness followed by some evil. And Uzziah reigns for 52 years. 2 Chronicles 26.5 says, He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. The key to that phrase is as long as, because it didn't last. Uzziah is, is gifted by God, and he is able to, to build an army, and so that when other forces attack, they are able to not only repel them, but defeat them, and they acquire spoils of war. And so throughout the early part of Uzziah's reign, Judah is growing and it is strong and it is vibrant and it is setting up this, this whole prosperity given by God's hand that later will become his downfall because then in 2 Chronicles 26, 16, it says about Uzziah, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. That's where we're coming in here in the book of Isaiah, where a king who has been blessed by the hand of God, who has been given authority by God, and who has for at least part of his reign led well and led his people to obey God and, and was blessed in the process, now ironically is standing there going, huh, I'm a pretty good king, aren't I? Look at what I have done. Not, not much different from old Nebuchadnezzar, if you, you think ahead a little bit to the book of Daniel. And here's Uzziah, who became proud, and God then judges Uzziah. And so the prophet frequently is confronting Judah's kings, because it is the leadership. It is the leadership that takes the nation down, and it is the, the proud arrogance of Uzziah that begins to lead Judah, instead of in humble gratitude to God, Uzziah ends up at the end of his reign an egomaniac who has been struck by God with leprosy. But that's the historic setting now into which Isaiah is speaking. It's a nation that has been living in good times and is on the verge of living in very bad times, but doesn't know that yet, doesn't believe that yet. You have arrogant leaders who too often yield to evil and injustice or they tolerate it amongst it. It says in here, speaks of their princes being like thieves. So even if it's not the king himself, it's his underlings who are stealing from people instead of falling on their knees and worship to God. And they are dismissing his sovereignty and they are acting like they are the rulers. They, they bought the notion of the neighboring nations. God is just sort of the genie do the, we know what we're supposed to do. Leviticus tells us what the rules are. So we just do those things and God blesses and it all works. It's a transaction. To echo our theme, only one savior, when a people become arrogant as Judah did, the underlying issue is one of trust. And that's a good point for us to pause and go, who do I trust in? Who, who do I practically daily work family, 
crisis, hardships, conflicts, who am I trusting in? Am I trusting in my own wit and intuition and skills to work my way through this? Or am I trusting in the sovereign God to grant me wisdom and give me help? We are either arrogantly self-sufficient in those moments or we are yielding and trusting in God. And that's, that's the dilemma here. This is a people now who have begun to say, we got this. God, oh yeah, God, sure, sure there's God. But when it comes right down to it, it's up to us. And there's complete dismissal of his sovereignty and his goodness. As believers in Jesus Christ, you know this, we can become comfortable. And, and we, can, we can, by all practical ways, forget God's sovereign, gracious rule over our lives and functionally just become like people who operate and I got it, I can do this. Uh, and, and, and then run to God when it becomes the right time. Um, we are not in control of our destiny, and we need to repent of that sort of attitude, and we need to trust that God is sovereign and in control, and, and we need his help, we need his wisdom at all times, and we need to plead for that. He is accomplishing all that he sets out to do. The, the unbelieving world, we see that all the time. The, the attitude that says, yeah, God's okay, but, but when it comes down to it, if the idea is you want me to believe in a God who is creator and Lord that I must submit to, who is master, whose morality, whose holiness, whose justice is the standard of what is rightness for me, of how I must live, that's when the world says, nah, that's, that's not really, I'd, I'd rather have a God that I can sort of fit into my own ethic and morality. God doesn't do that. God presents himself and says, this is who I am. I am God and there is none like me. There is no savior beside me. I am just, I am righteous, I am holy, and I am loving, and I am sovereign, and you must submit to my rule. That's what we see in chapter one is that clash right off the bat. Holy God, sinful man. Isaiah calls to the people of Judah and he says, you, you are like children who have forgotten who provided everything for you. We've all been children at one time or another, and we all couldn't provide for ourselves at one time or another. We needed somebody to provide for us. And this is just the picture of ingratitude. He says to them, you are like children who, I, 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 we don't need it anymore. We got it. He says, even oxen, even oxen know, they got to get back to the barn. They know their farmer because they know that's where their meal comes from. And yet you, Judah, you act like you don't even know who God is, like you don't even understand. This is just absolute ingratitude at this point. God, we're, we're shining our chariots and we're counting our gold coins and we'll get back to you when we need you. Verse four, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. That is an incredible indictment saying God is holy, he is separate, he is perfect, he is sinless, he is without blemish. And you, and they don't even see this, when he says laden with iniquity, it's like you are being crushed by your sin. It's like you are under, the, you are under this weight. You know those, those heavy blankets that we get, that you, know, you put those real weighted blankets over you that feel really good. He says you, it's like a weighted blanket of sin that is on top of you. I, that, that's what I see when I see you, is you are laden with iniquity. And, and they're just 
oblivious to this. They have spurned the Lord. They have treated their creator with contempt. When the ESV there at the end of that verse, at the end of verse four says, utterly estranged, the, the Christian standard, the CSB says, they have turned their backs on him. It's not a passive as if they're, they're suddenly just separated, estranged. No, they have, they have actually said to God, we're fine, we don't need you, and walked in another direction. And they are not submitting to him and foolishly spurning him. Verse 5, Isaiah asks a question we've all asked at one time or another when he says, why will you be struck down? Why, why will you be in this state? Why will you continue to rebel? Parents, have you ever asked your child a question like that? Why do you keep doing this, right? Truth be told, we all have those moments when we stop and look in our own hearts and go, why do I keep doing this? Why do I sin in this way? And that's what Isaiah is, is saying to the people that you are you're carrying on an unrepentant, foolish sin. Why do you keep doing this? And then what he does is he spells out for them, do you realize how destructive this is? For some reason, you're not seeing it, but this sin is eating you up from the inside out, and he gives the picture of a body that is sick, and yet nobody's treating it. They don't, they don't feel like they're sick. They're like the guy who refuses to go to the doctor, right? I'm fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine, right? That, that was an illustration I wasn't actually coughing. <laughs> Just in case. I know I'm old, but... They got, you got sores, you got, you got head-to-toe sickness, and you are rotting from the inside out. Don't you see this? He says you're like a field that at one time was, was glorious. You could, you could grow all kinds of stuff there, and you've allowed it to just go to weeds, and there's nothing that can be done now. It's just trashed. And that's what your sin is doing. That's how it's destroying you. And, and you are just blind to it. It's rotting you from the inside out. I remember a seminary professor, one of the lines that stuck out to me years ago in seminary was, sin always brings death. And I remember first going, well, no, I'm a believer, so I'm, I'm safe. But, but his point was, there's always a destructive element to sin. There's always a decay. There's always a, there's always a cost to sin. There's always, sin is always killing in some way. It's, it's robbing, it's stealing, it's damaging, it's lying, it's, it's infiltrating in some way. And that's what Isaiah is trying to say here. Is, is it is just destroying you from within and you don't even see it. Look at verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Verse 9, he's, he's appealing to a people who should have known the story. You know Sodom and Gomorrah, and you know what God did there. Those cities were destroyed. And, and he's reminding them that God has been merciful to you. Jerusalem's still standing. You're, you're still here to hear this message. You who are acting like you live in Sodom and Gomorrah, you rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah. He says, this is God being merciful to you, and even that will not stop their rebellion. Verses 11 through 15, he, he goes on to then describe how this, this evil rebellion is infiltrating their worship it's distorting what they call worship. They're doing the rituals, but it's purely hypocritical. They are not changed. They are not repentant. It's a half-hearted sort of do what we got to do to keep the God happy so that the God keeps blessing us kind of thing. It's just a, a business arrangement. I go to ceremonies and I leave my sacrifice. Have you ever, hard question here for application, have you ever tried 
to manipulate God with worship. Have you ever done the, if I do this, if I attend, if I give, if I stop doing this, if, if, I, if I'm consistent about this, then shouldn't I then get that? Shouldn't, shouldn't it sort of work out as some sort of formula, some kind of, we, we might not, quite use the God sort of owes me language at all, but we subtly assume that that formula works, that if I, I do this, then I should be protected at least from some affliction, right? I, I, I should, you know, things should come better my way. And yet we know from scripture, and this is what God is confronting here, worship is the wholehearted devotion of our lives and our treasure and our being, heart, mind, and soul to God because of who He is and what He deserves and who we are and the fact that He has been merciful to us. That should provoke us to worship because of who He is and just desiring to show gratitude and honor to the King. There's no room for using worship as a bargaining chip. That's what they're doing. Verse 12, when he describes the false worshipers as trampling his courts. That's not just a picture of people sort of recklessly traipsing through the temple grounds. The idea of trampling there in the Hebrew is like kicking dirt on something. He, he's saying you are defiling. You are just, you, you come in and what you do is just like kicking dirt over the temple by your activities because you are not repentant. You are defiling God's temple. And really the key to it is verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Again, functionally, outwardly, they're doing the right thing. They're raising their hands. They're praying their many prayers. They're doing the things that have been prescribed for them in Leviticus. But he says, I will not see them. I will not hear them. And he says, the revealing statement is that last part, because your hands are full of blood. What does he mean by that? There's two ways we can go with that. You can go back to verse 11 where he speaks of them, I, I don't take delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And so partly there's a picture there of a people who are, are going through the motions and sacrificing the animals and they're standing there with the blood on their hands saying, look, Lord, isn't this what you want? This is what you called us to do. And essentially God is saying, that, that is worthless. You're standing there looking foolish. That blood on your hands is not covering anything because you are unrepentant. You are not coming to me because you are bowing because of your sin. You're just going through motions. And so that blood is meaningless. That's possible. But I would also suggest that verse 15 flows right into 16 and 17, which is these commands. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Nine imperative commands in two verses. Nine statements by God. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. It is your sin that is covering you. One of the great commentators on the book of Isaiah, John Oswald, writes, Yes, their hands are full of the blood of sacrifices, but they are also full of the blood of the innocent, whom they have abused or in whose abuse they have been implicated. God's commands are clear. Stop your evil. Stop oppressing. Stop killing. Stop the injustice. Stop abusing. Stop doing all of this stuff. Repent of it. A man who repeatedly forces those who are weaker than himself to comply to his demands does not possess a heart that is bowed before God. And that's his warning. 
Don't, don't come to me with these sacrifices acting as if you are a worshiper of mine. You are worshiping yourself. You are pleasing yourself and satisfying yourself, and this is all about what, what brings you some form of delight. Admit your sin and surrender to me, and there is a sacrifice that will remove that guilt. And that's where we'll get, you know this as we go on through Isaiah, and particularly Isaiah 53, there is atonement for these sins. And that will come through the servant who is to be sent. But for now, what God is saying, this is the first of many, many times in Isaiah, when in the midst of wrath, God will say, that wrath doesn't have to be the final word. You can turn. You can turn and you can find grace and forgiveness if you will turn from your sin and you will come to me. And the great statement of that flows here in verse 18. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God hates evil, God hates injustice, God hates hypocritical worship, God hates the shedding of innocent blood, all that is true, but our infinitely holy God is also loving and gracious, and therefore you find verses like this that say, come, think about this. This doesn't have to be this way. You can turn from this. You can come to me, and you can be forgiven and redeemed. If you will bow before me, come let us reason together, and you can experience redemption and restoration and forgiveness. I love the language here of the CSB on verse 18. It says, come, let's settle this. This is a gracious and holy God saying, I judge sin. I despise sin. But I offer redemption to you. If you will, if you will but come to me and seek forgiveness, I can provide that. The blood of the lamb that washes away sin will be revealed, but the call from God is, you, you can keep running headlong down this path, and I assure you it will lead to your destruction. I promise you that. Or you can turn to me, and I will save you. Isaiah chapter 1 makes one more run through this same cycle. We finish 18, 19, 20. It's this message of hope. And then verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. The princes are thieves. Everyone loves a bribe. They don't bring justice to the fatherless. It, it just goes right back again. God's anger abides because of this cruel injustice that is going on, and he warns them. But then right near the end of the chapter, there's one more verse I just want us to, to get, and as, as, as you're reading through, this one should just sort of cause you to pause in the midst of all of this, and it's verse 26. Because he has just said, I will turn my hand against you, smelt away your dross, remove all your allies. Judgment is coming. Verse 26, and I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. We should pause at that point. If you've got one of those journals, that, that's one of those places for going, what? How is that? After everything we've just seen about the, the injustice at every level and corruption and taking advantage and harming people, and God says, afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. God has vowed judgment, and yet God has said, 
I will still accomplish my purposes. And my purpose, his purpose for Israel right from the beginning was, you're to be a shining light. You're, you're to be something that other people see and therefore are drawn to me, and you've marred that in every way by your evil. But that doesn't mean my purpose has failed. There will be a day when they will say, ah, oh, look at that righteousness and that faithfulness, and they will be drawn to that. And how is that even possible? It is because of what we read earlier. I am God and there is no other. I determine the end from the beginning and what I say will be, will be. And there is God in his prophetic word there in verse 26 saying, this is not the end of the story. Friends, God's, God's sovereignty and God's goodness, the fact that he is sovereign and all things work after the counsel of his will and his goodness are not band-aids that let us do whatever we please and just sort of say, oh, it'll all work out. God will fix it because God is sovereign and God is good. I can do whatever I want. Paul dismisses that argument in Romans. His sovereignty and his goodness are meant to give us hope and cause us to worship him with gratitude, to say that even... Even on my worst days, I have a God who still urges me to repent, who still pleads with me to turn to him and to find forgiveness in him. Yesterday, we were at the service celebrating the life of Pastor Stewart's dad, Jim. And um, toward at one point in the service, the, the pastor read from Isaiah 40. My ears perked up. It's like, ah, there, there's that chapter 40. This is thinking about all of this stuff. Um, the light begins to shine into the darkness. I, I've been thinking about chapter one all week, and it's like, oh, chapter 40 just makes you think about the, the Messiah, the servant is coming. And, um, and he read from the last part of that, and it's God is making a way of redemption. And, and I, I want to finish there today, and I want to read the last verses of Isaiah 40, but I want to I do what we did at the beginning. I'm going to ask you to stand. And we'll put it up on the screen for you, and we're going to read Isaiah 40, 28 to 31 in closing. But as you read it, in light of all that we've just read, I want, you to, I want you to read this. I want you to speak this to your soul, the goodness of these verses. I want you to speak them out to your neighbor and encourage them with these verses. All right, Isaiah 40, verses 28 to 31. There we go. Let's read these together. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Father, we recite your word, the ancient word through Isaiah to your people with such gladness. Lord, the, the weariness that you speak of here is not just the fatigue of everyday life and the pressures of the world and the temptations of sin and the brokenness of our bodies. That's, that's all there, but it's even the weariness of confronting our sin dealing with the, the daily pressures of temptation and responding to that poorly. And yet you, you speak into our souls. There is strength for those who will wait on the Lord. 
those who will rest in him, those who will trust in him. There is a renewing of strength that this world cannot provide. There is a renewing of the inner man, Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians, that is continuing to strengthen us and prepare us for that day when we will stand before you in glory. Father, I pray first, if there's anyone watching online this morning or here at the service who is, who is struggling in these, even reading these verses and saying, I don't, I don't have this, I don't feel this, I don't know what this means, Lord. I, we see Isaiah pointing forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And it is in Jesus that there is the, the forgiveness and the hope. It's in his name alone. And so I, I pray, Lord, that today anybody who's not yet convinced of this, that you would open their eyes to see that the Son of God came, lived a perfect life, lived perfectly in every way that we fail, every way that we fall short. He followed your will obediently. And then he suffered on the cross in order for the weight of our sin to be cast on him so that he would experience your judgment of our sin. And then he rose victorious from the grave so that all who would cling to him would have forgiveness. Their sins would be washed as white as snow. They would have the crimson now made like wool, as you said in Isaiah. Father, there is forgiveness and there is hope. And I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's not there, that you would bring them to cry out to Jesus, to trust in him, to believe that he died on the cross, to save them from their sins. Father, for we who are following after you, who are desiring to walk in your ways, thank you for Isaiah. Thank you for the challenges and the conviction and the reminders of ways that we can fall into these same sorts of attitudes toward worship and others, toward injustice and unkindness. Help us to love righteousness, to love holiness. Help us to walk in your ways. And above all, cause us to, to be convinced moment by moment that you alone are the Savior. You alone are God, and your will is good for your people. We thank you for that. Cause us to walk in it with joy as we leave here this day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.